are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. State lawmakers gaveled in yesterday, two months after they suspended the legislative session. You might recall that happened after Senator Clarence Nishihara tested positive for COVID-19 following a mainland trip. Now, lawmakers are back in session this week with a plan to fix the budget and avoid cutting salaries or furloughing government workers. Their fix has to do with padding the rainy day fund. HPR's Ryan Finnerty joins us live. Good morning, Ryan. Morning, Catherine. So what's the situation? You know, how short at we are, are we? I mean, you know, we heard yesterday that the governor may have gotten some bad numbers initially. Yeah, that's right. Um, to put it in perspective, the, the state budget currently is about $18 billion annually. Um, and state lawmakers, uh, leaders in the, the House and Senate say that they're now short by about $1 billion dollars. Governor Ige and his administration said they think the number is closer to $1.5 billion, but they have acknowledged that some of their previous calculations contained errors that caused the number to be higher than what it actually is. So there is this disagreement over $500 million, which is, is not an insignificant amount of money, but to you know keep in mind that $1 billion is about 6% of the budget. So uh, we're, we're not talking about a gigantic difference um, when it comes to these two numbers. But the, the reason there's this uncertainty or the fact that we have a hole at all is that tax revenue has gone down quite a bit as a result of the ongoing decline in economic activity. Um, and, you know, even during normal times, it's somewhat difficult to project exactly what revenues the state's going to bring in. There's a a body called the Council on Revenues that's responsible for making those projections, and they're pretty complicated um, because of all the different sources of revenue and how they're all impacted by various economic factors. And uh, Senate President Ron Kochi kind of explained why that, uh, why there's been this decline and, and some of the different sources of revenue that have caused the decline to go down. He specifically cited the state's hotel tax, known as the TAT, or the transient accommodation tax, that's been nearly zeroed out by the lack of tourists, and other sources are down as well. In the area of TAT, any kind of visitor arrivals is almost down to zero. The general excise tax activity has stopped as well, and the income tax filings were deferred from April 15th to July 20th. So in the near term, you know, those are the biggest revenue generators that we have. And uh, it's worth noting that state lawmakers are required to produce a balanced budget every two years. Uh, most states uh, in the country have this balanced budget requirement. They're not allowed to run annual deficits the way the federal government does. So when there is a big drop in revenue like this, lawmakers need to find a way to either uh, make up that money somewhere else by uh, reallocating funds or cutting spending or by generating uh, new money in some way. Um, and so that's kind of what they've reconvened is to find a way to, uh, to make up this gap. So can you talk more about what the options are? Yeah, there's a few different options. Um, everyone might remember that initially the governor came out and said they were considering, they, the administration, were considering an across-the-board 20% pay cut for state workers, including teachers. Um, and, and they've since walked back from that. Um, the governor cited that error in calculation that we mentioned uh, at the top as uh, making the problem seem worse than it actually is, and that's why they had suggested that. Um, they have, all parties have kind of pushed back against that idea now. Um, the legislative branch, the senators and representatives, have expressed their preference for some modest re spending reductions, primarily through eliminating vacant staff positions or redirecting unspent funds, so money that's been previously allocated but not used by the administration. Um, there's also the possibility that they could borrow the money and, and make it up that way. And here's House Speaker Scott Psyche outlining that possibility. So there's a couple of programs in particular. One is a federal program. It's called the Liquidity Fund, which is um, available to state and county governments. And it's a loan fund. And the other would be a pension obligation bonds, where rather than paying cash, the state would borrow funds to pay its pension obligation this year. 
And then, of course, there's also the possibility that the federal government, U.S. Congress, could step in with some kind of additional aid package that's currently being discussed in Washington right now, but there does seem to be some uh, partisan disagreement over whether or not uh, an additional aid package will be approved for state and local governments. So lawmakers really kind of have to work with those known options. And the other complication is that the longer this recession lasts, the worse the shortfall will get and the, the more money they'll likely have to make up. Uh, the current numbers projected out to around 15 months. Um, but, you know, it could always, uh, that number could grow if the, if the situation deteriorates or continues to drag on. Now, there's that money that was uh, set aside under the CARES Act, the federal money. So, you know, uh, talk about that. Yeah, um, Hawaii, the CARES Act, rather, is, uh, so this is that big federal rescue package that everyone uh, has probably heard about over the last few weeks. Hawaii, as a state, received about $4 billion in the various federal rescue packages. Um, Most of that came in the form of wage subsidies for businesses, like the payroll protection program, direct cash stimulus payments to residents that... um, that um, all eligible residents should have received or are in the process of receiving, and then those extra funds for unemployment insurance, the extra $600 a week, which uh, there have been some issues in in actually getting to Hawaii residents specifically. Um, but of that $4 billion, about $1.25 billion was given directly to the state government to address unexpected expenses related to the pandemic, and that phrase unexpected expenses is important because that money can only be used for new expenses that have arisen as a result of the pandemic. It can't be used to fund previously budgeted for programs and positions uh, that are now in in danger of, of not having funds because of the decline in tax revenue. So some department heads in the uh, state Department of Taxation are looking to see how they can be creative and and find ways to legally use that CARES Act money. One uh, possibility was reassigning state workers who are are in what we might call non-essential duties, um, putting them into pandemic-related jobs, and then using money to fund their salaries. That's being looked at, or uh, something along those lines. Um, And then it's also worth noting that you know, this is a, a shortfall in the state budget, and of that one and a quarter billion dollars that the state got from the federal government for expenses, a big chunk of that is going to go to county governments, about 45 percent of that. Um, and those county governments are also facing added expenses uh, in responding to the pandemic. So their, uh, the counties, the lion's share of their budget comes from property taxes, which um, – on paper shouldn't be impacted as much, but there are significant concerns over the ability of some residents to pay their tax bill given uh, the really, really high rates of unemployment we're seeing. Almost one in three local workers are now out of a job. Okay, and I know that the state lawmakers are going to be taking up that uh, uh, CARES bill this afternoon, and you're going to be busy tracking uh, uh, that meeting as well as uh, so many others. But thanks so much, Ryan. Sure thing, Catherine. That was HPR's Ryan Finnerty. To read more of his legislative coverage, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. And it is now time to take a look across the globe. The World Health Organization says that countries in North and South America are now the primary drivers of coronavirus spread. This comes as leading U.S. scientists warn of dire consequences of reopening the country too soon. Here's the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on May the 12th. I'm Jackie Leonard. The leading U.S. infectious diseases expert warns of serious consequences if the country opens up too soon. The WHO says the Americas are now driving the pandemic and a German man has finally left Delhi airport after being stuck there for almost eight weeks. The leading U.S. expert on infectious diseases, Anthony Fauci, has warned against a premature lifting of the restrictions aimed at limiting the spread of COVID-19. He told a hearing of the U.S. Senate Health Committee that reopening too quickly and too soon could lead to new outbreaks. If some areas, cities, states or what have you jump over those various checkpoints and prematurely open up 
without having the capability of being able to respond effectively and efficiently, my concern is that we will start to see little spikes that might turn into outbreaks. So therefore, I have been being very clear in my message to try to the best extent possible to go by the guidelines, which have been very well thought out and very well delineated. President Trump, who's hoping to be re-elected in November, has been pressing for states to allow businesses to reopen. The White House previously blocked Dr Fauci's testimony to the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. The Senate is controlled by Mr Trump's Republican Party. Dr Fauci's evidence came shortly after the World Health Organization said that the pandemic was now being driven by the Americas. It said outbreaks in some countries had now become very serious because they didn't listen to its initial warnings. Imogen Folks reports. Faced with criticism that it has handled the pandemic badly, the WHO has been reminding the world of what actions it took when. Mid-January, warning all member states... End of January, declaring an international health emergency. Throughout February, calling on governments to begin rigorous testing and quarantining. Asked about the very large outbreaks in the US and Brazil, a WHO spokeswoman said those warnings had not been seen as serious. The latest official British statistics suggest that the true number of deaths caused by the disease in the United Kingdom is above 38,000, 6,000 more than the government's tally. The figure is based on data released by the Office for National Statistics covering England and Wales and care homes. Elsewhere, Russia has now the second highest number of coronavirus cases in the world after the US. The latest figures show that more than 230,000 people have tested positive for COVID-19. With all immigration into the U.S. suspended, thousands of asylum seekers are trapped in lockdown in dangerous Mexican border cities like Tijuana. Magali Contreras is from Ecuador. She spent nine months waiting for her asylum request to be processed, and she fears that if her court date is postponed indefinitely, her claim will be dismissed without ever getting to court. Just the idea that everything's going to be cancelled and that everything we've been through is in vain, it's a really horrible feeling, really horrible. The WHO says that 70 traditional medicine experts from across Africa have unanimously agreed that clinical trials must be conducted on all medicines in the region without exception. This comes as several African heads of state have chosen to import large quantities of a herbal drink, which the president of Madagascar says can prevent and cure the virus. A German man who spent almost eight weeks living in a transit area of Delhi Airport after becoming stranded due to the lockdown has finally left after boarding a flight to Amsterdam. Joel McGivering takes up the story. Edgar Zibat flew into Delhi's international airport from Hanoi on March the 18th, expecting to board a flight to Istanbul a few hours later. But he arrived to find his flight and all the others had been cancelled. He became stranded, apparently denied permission to enter India. He also failed to take an emergency evacuation flight. The Delhi airport authorities say they gave him food, toiletries and a recliner. And he spent his days reading and talking to friends by phone. And finally, the Eurovision Song Contest semi-finals were due to start in the Dutch city of Rotterdam today. But like all such mass gatherings, they have been cancelled. Never fear, though, our Moscow correspondent and self-declared Eurovision superfan, Steve Rosenberg, spent the day sitting at a grand piano at the Dutch embassy. His party trick, he can play every Eurovision-winning song from memory. We'll leave you with just a few. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. joining us here on The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. 
For today's quiz, we intend to dispel the myth that if you dig a hole deep enough in your backyard, you'll end up in China. That's because Hawaii's antipode, the geographic point on the Earth's surface that is diametrically opposite of it, or in layman's terms, the spot on the other side of the world, is not China. In fact, it's not even Asia. Geographers estimate that only 15% of the Earth's uh, landmass is antipodal to other land. That's because oceans cover 71% of our world. So if you wanted to drill a tunnel underneath your house in a straight line to the opposite side of the planet, 85% of the time you are going to end up at the bottom of the ocean. And with Hawaii being so small and in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, one would think that our antipathy would be in some sort of body of water, but it is not. So for the question of the day, if we were to dig a hole straight through the earth to the other side, what country would we end up in? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. two months as there's been less traffic on our roadways there are reports of more speeders and jaywalkers particularly here on Oahu the Honolulu Police Department has been ticketing the scoff laws and when they you know it wants to re remind the public that the rules of the road are meant to keep people safe whether you're walking or driving a car and as many businesses are set to open on Friday the public is being reminded to be careful out there we reached out to HPD's uh, Sergeant Dana Souza to talk about enforcement, but first we hear from Lance Ray of Walkwise Hawaii about the fatalities so far this year. So if you look at January 1, 2019 to May 6, 2019, we had 41 traffic fatalities. Mm -hmm. uh, we had 16 motor vehicle occupants across the entire state. 17 pedestrians, and then we had eight people that were either like on a, a moped or a scooter, that kind of operator. The same time for this year, January 1st, 2020 to May 6, 2020, we had 25 traffic fatalities. Ten of them were motor vehicle occupants, nine were pedestrians, and six were, again, moped scooter operators. So you can see there's been a considerable decrease in each of the categories. Across the islands for pedestrians, we had five fatalities on Oahu as opposed to nine the last year. But in Hawaii County, we had three pedestrian fatalities where we only had two last year. Um, and then on Maui, we only had one, and last year at this time we had five. So, and again, when I say only had any, any, any fatalities, too many fatalities, I want to make sure that you understand that. So we, we have seen um, a decrease in traffic fatalities across the board, yet I, I am witnessing a lot of, personally, a lot of bad behavior by drivers and pedestrians while I'm watching them on the streets. What is HPD seeing out there? On the numbers-wise, in April, we've issued out 225 uh, pedestrian violation citations. This is uh, like jaywalking? Yes, that, that compromise of jaywalking um, pedestrians to obey by the signals, that walking hand signals, and also um, crossing in other than roadways. Okay, so you folks are still out there enforcing laws even though uh, we have watched a lot of the traffic go down uh, and, you know, there are fewer people out and about on the streets. Yes, all traffic laws violations will be addressed accordingly by the officers. So what's the message that you folks want to get out as, as we start to slowly reopen businesses? We have seen so many more people out walking. For the Honolulu Police Department, Everything for us is just arriving, you know, safely and utilizing your common sense, too, when it comes to social distancing. We are trying to 
make sure that all laws are being upheld to. And we understand that sometimes people, like the, how we're saying, the bike lanes, people walking in the bike lanes in Waikiki and some of the bicycles list have noted that they don't believe that the person should be walking in the bike lane, but you know sometimes they can get caught on a sidewalk. So just got to remember that there's there's no rush to go nowhere. Sometimes you might have to step into a like a walkway that goes to an apartment building. You know, sometimes they have those long walkways just so you can keep your social distancing. But officers will be out there still enforcing all violations. Yeah, and I'd like to comment on that as well because, you know, where everyone's trying to practice, you know, six-foot distance, you know, as you're walking down the sidewalk. But, of course, it's impossible if it's a very narrow sidewalk, you know, and you have someone coming toward you, then the only place for you to go actually is in the street, you know. So I've been noticing pedestrians um, sort of stepping in between cars and in some cases kind of crossing, going around the car on the street, which is very, very dangerous. You know, we recommend that pedestrians, if you have to step off the curb between two cars, just wait there until that pedestrian passes and continue on the sidewalk. Don't go into the street. You know, make sure and make sure you're facing traffic so you know that traffic is coming because um, a lot of cars may be driving along the roadway and not anticipating that a pedestrian is going to come between two cars, right? And what about in neighborhoods? What's happening in neighborhoods? As far as we've seen in neighborhoods, well, more people are just trying to get their exercise out. So, of course, they're utilizing walking as their main source of exercise. So there's more people on the sidewalk now at times than it seems as there's vehicles. Uh. Yeah, and you know, people are distracted. I have to say, you know, they're wearing, they're wearing their masks, right, and being safe out there as well. So sometimes the mask is not fit, fitting very well. Then, So their mouth is closed, their nose is closed, and then many of them have earpods on and listening to music. So we do see a lot of distracted walkers. You know, they're kind of in their zone, you know, doing their own thing, you know, and I, I encourage everyone to, you know, maybe take those earpods out and pay a little more attention uh, to uh, where they're walking. You know, have a plan, you you know, plan your route when you're going outside to get your exercise, even if you're in a neighborhood. What do you tell drivers? Should they be wearing masks in the car? I, for me, you know, I wear glasses. You know, so when I put on my mask, you know, um, you know, again, we need to wear a mask when we're going into a store, right? We're going to the grocery store, but we don't need a mask when we're in our car. You know, we're traveling with our family who we're quarantined with. Take off that mask because that mask can can impair your vision a little bit to the left and right. You're, you know, and also for those of us who wear glasses, they fog up. Yes. Right? The breath fogs up, and you can't see. So take off that mask, you know, put it um, between your seats, and then remember to put it on uh, before you get out of the car. Any Anything else, Dana, that you want to add just as far as uh, drivers and what you're seeing out there? Well, with the drivers, the main thing, one of the biggest concerns we have is the usage of distracted driving devices such as cell phones. Yeah. You know, and sometimes that can even become the other people you have in your vehicle. Sometimes people are talking, having a conversation, and then they don't realize they've run through a stop sign. And who knows who's crossing the street at that point, too, if a pedestrian comes through that stop crosswalk area and you just ran the stop sign because you're fiddling with your phone, you're talking with another person in your car, and you're ultimately just not paying attention because we've grown accustomed and probably in the last month to nobody on the roadways, yeah? Yeah. Now it starts getting... You know, we might have, like how Lance said, people coming out of between vehicles and you're not aware of it because you're not fully focused on the road in front of you. You know, and a report came out from the Governor's Highway Safety Association, and we've been seeing the pedestrian deaths were on a decline for, you know, almost like 30 years. You know, then in 2009, we kind of saw a reversal of uh, pedestrian fatalities, and that's because, you know, we're seeing more cell phone usage by, you know, people on the streets, you know, by pedestrians and drivers. You know, we're seeing less forgiving vehicles, like larger SUVs, so pedestrians are being struck, um, you know, by bigger cars now. So as we're seeing all these other traffic fatalities nationally, including in Hawaii, going down, you know, pedestrian accidents and fatalities have been going up uh, because of these distraction issues and because of larger vehicles. I have seen more electric scooters mm-hmm. and these devices. They look like skateboards, but they're motorized. Yeah, one, one wheelies, yeah, we call them. They're like one wheels, they're calling. They call those the electric um, motorized one wheels, and they use their weight, yeah. To kind of go forward and backwards and but they're they go quite they go quickly <laughs> they do go fast and so uh, i was just surprised to see so many of them i guess maybe they figure you know there are not that many cars out on the street and so they're 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 out there yeah and it's dangerous too because it's not like they have a, dr- a driver's license for those vehicles those machine those bicycles or those those motorized things so um they're not sort of following any sort of traffic laws. I mean, I see them zooming through stop signs and, you know, going through crosswalks and, you know, they're kind of haphazard, you know, a little bit dangerous. And are they supposed to be on the sidewalks or in the bike lanes? 
the description of those vehicles, those are like, they're not, they don't have a, what's called like a motorized, so they're not a motor. So what we consider motors uh, for laws-wise is anything with five horsepower or more. So when they utilize, there's not, they're not supposed to be in the bikeways because for bike, I mean, yeah. uh, so they're made for bikes. And then they're technically considered, in a sense, pedestrians at that yeah. point because we don't really have a classification mm-hmm. for what they're riding. It's just an electric, it's an electric so if they are a pede- if they're considered a pedestrian, they really should be on the sidewalk, you know, yeah. behaving behaving like a pedestrian. But I think many times their operators behave, you know, as if they were a driver. Right? So there's a loophole yeah. there. There's a little bit of loophole, yeah. Yeah, we're still trying to catch up in the whole and not enforcement of it, but just how we the definition of of the motor because some people have those electric things are can be yeah, like we said, they're going fast, so when having the horsepower and everything like that to clearly define what they're on. But as far as right now, it seems like as if it's a recreational vehicle, yeah. like a okay. recreational, the exact is like recreational, I afraid they prefer to get Device the or something. Yeah. You know, but, but they're considered, you know, they're a vulnerable user of our, our roadways, mm-hmm. you know, so um, they can easily be uh, injured, you know, from being hit, struck by a vehicle, right? Anything else that you think will be important to underscore as we start to see more traffic? Well, I would just say, just, just a reminder to all our drivers, you know, our, our, you know our, primary, our primary purpose as a driver is to get from point A to point B safely. You know, that's our job, to drive this. So plan your route ahead of time. You know, uh, remember that we're not in the car to, you know, our purpose is not to listen to music and eat food. And there's a lot of things we can do in the car that are equally as distracting as using your cell phone. We do know that people use their cell phones in their car illegally. You know, put that phone in the trunk of your car in the back seat so you're not tempted by it. You know, make sure the little, um, make sure your phone is set so that if somebody does try to call you, that message goes about, says, you know, hey, I'm driving right now. I'll get hold of you when I stop the car. You know, make sure you do that. You know, we'll be really, we'll make our roadway safer. And Dana, anything else from HPD's point of view? From our point of view is being cognizant, no matter if you're a driver or a pedestrian. As a pedestrian, sometimes you may need to think that a vehicle can't see you. Due to, you know, coming around a corner, sometimes we have those vehicles that are taller, lifted trucks, things of that sort, which as vehicles come, they have a hard time seeing into a turn. So you as a pedestrian have to think about that. And as a driver, pay attention to the roadway in front of you, slow down, and just make sure that you clearly see all objects in front of you. And do you think more people have been speeding during the stay-at-home orders because they figured there are fewer people out and about? The way we've been seeing with that is that we're used, on this island, we're so used to traffic. You know, a lot of people are so used to waiting in traffic, things of that sort, before this whole incident. And now, during this time, they've seen open roadways, so they've just been on their gas and saying, I, you know, I'm trying to get there, and there's no cars on the road. But you folks are ticketing. Yes, we are. We are. We are. Addressing all laws as usual. Yeah, I've, I've been seeing HPD ticket jaywalkers in the downtown area every day. Yeah, there's just people just jaywalking all over the place, trying to pick up their food orders from the restaurants. You know, they, there's not much traffic out there, so they think, oh, I could just cross the street here, you know, and that's just not safe. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Hey, thank you very much, and please be a safe driver and a safe walker. And that was Lance Ray on behalf of WalkWise Hawaii's campaign and uh, Sergeant Dana Souza of the Honolulu Police Department's Traffic Division urging everyone across the state to be mindful of safety. On Friday of this week, more Oahu businesses will be opening up their doors and there may be more motorists and pedestrians out as the COVID restrictions are gradually relaxed. Join us tonight at 8 p.m. on HPR2 for popular romantic pieces by French composers Saint-Saëns and Franck, performed by Hawaii's own symphony orchestra. Violinist Tessa Clark makes her HSO debut in this special encore broadcast, tonight at 8 p.m. on HPR2, sponsored by Mid-Pacific Institute.
Our reality check segment with Honolulu Civil Beat looks at a plan to add a number of large utility-scale solar farms as we move to meet the state's ambitious green energy goals. Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning to talk about that. Hi there. Good morning. Oh, good morning to you, Catherine. Yes, and so, you know, I saw the headline on this story and I went, what, 16 solar farms? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty big deal. By the way, if I could just interject, because I heard my good buddy Lance Ray earlier, yes. <laughs> I I almost got ticketed yesterday for for jaywalking. The the police officer came up to me, and believe me, I was guilty, stone cold. <laughs> uh, but said, "Can I see your ID? Did you know that's a hundred and thirty six dollar fine or something like that?" I said, "I I said I'm so sorry, you got me." He let me go, but um, it's real. Anyway, that's just my personal testimony. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, now, back to the solar farm. So this is from Stuart Yurton, who covers business, in particular renewable energy. And this is from Hawaiian Electric. This is something that had been anticipated for some time now. He had, re- he had written several stories about this. In fact, Hawaiian Electric itself describes this as the biggest request for proposals for renewable energy projects in its history. So that underscores just how big it is. But here's what's so curious. Uh, Hawaiian Electric did unveil some details about these projects, 16 total new solar farms, but had very little else to say about it. For example, who will be building these projects and exactly where are they going to be built? That information will not be disclosed for uh, at least another month, although uh, the winning bidders, if if they so choose, they they can tell people, they can disclose that information publicly. And that's kind of critical information. Where? <laughs> it is, and I should say, by the way, these are a combination of uh, solar plus uh, storage projects or standalone uh, storage projects. We do know that they are on three islands: Oahu, Maui, and the Big Island. In fact, I can even give a little more information. Nine will be on Oahu. Uh, four on Maui, three on the Big Island. But we don't know much else about that. And the concern that was raised, and Stuart does this rather uh, slightly in his story, if I can put it, is, well, you can't help but think about what happened on Mauna Kea with TMT. That situation is still on hold. Uh, And Kahuku here on Oahu with the wind farms. A lot of protest for that project, although the wind farm construction is going through. And then one more here on Oahu, Waimanalo, right? Kirk Caldwell's plan to build that municipal park at Sherwoods. And, of course, that encountered a whole uh, whole another uh, level of protest. That is on hold, if I last remember, right? Because they discovered EV mm-hmm. in the area, and they have to look into that. So what, what Stewart is suggesting in the article is uh, there may be some— and he's not saying this directly, but I think I'm just going to go ahead into it. These projects can be very controversial. These are large projects, and if people don't want them in their backyard, NIMBYism, well, you could well see um, a protest turn out. Right, and we did see uh, some pushback with some of the projects that are currently online now. The one up uh, on the west side, Euros and Waianae. Uh, there was yeah. some concern. It was right by the school. They wanted a buffer. You know, there's, a, I think, a... Uh, one up on the North Shore. There's a couple in Mililani area uh, that kind of started and then stopped and then started again. Uh, you know, in this case, Hawaiian Electric itself will now be entering into to contract negotiations with the winners of these 16 projects. And, and it will be up to the developers to do community outreach. And I think that's critical, particularly as was learned in Kahuku. While the developers said that they had done community outreach, there were others in the community that felt, no, it wasn't quite uh, sufficient at all. So that's going to be a big part of this going forward to, to reach out to folks in these neighborhoods, once they're identified, uh, to answer any questions and allay any concerns. And we have to say that the windmills, those projects have actually been more problematic than the large solar scale um, solar farms. Right. I mean, there's there are disagreements as to whether they're safe or not. The companies say that they are safe, but the, some who object to them have said the noise that they emit, that they shouldn't be too close to schools or residences. Solar is, is somewhat different. We should, of course, tell you um, it, it varies in megawatt generation. It, it varies in gigawatt hours for project to project. We'll find out. But all of this, and I think you alluded to this at the top, this is all about the state's goal 
to which Hawaiian Electric is tied, uh, to convert to 100% renewable energy by the year 2045. And even though that seems like a long time ago, uh, a long time from now, it really isn't. And this has to be started now. Right. And I know there's that one wind project at Palihua Ridge. Uh, Euros pulled out of that one. And I think there are a couple of proposals for solar farms on the well, on the plains, on the Eba Plain side with, you know, the military's um, lands over there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. We will be following it. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beats uh, Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Read Stuart Yurton's story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Why do we give bad news so much more power than good? It probably goes back to our evolutionary roots. As we say, life has to win every day. Death only has to win once. The negativity bias affects our personal relationships, our work relationships, our very view of the world. So what do you do? I thought, I'm drawn to this, but I need to find an antidote. Reasons to be cheerful. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This evening at 7, following Counterspin. In today's Backyard Quiz, we were talking Antipodes, or that's the spot that's directly on the opposite side of the world from where you are. Geographers estimate that 96% of the world has a body of water on the other side of the planet, leaving only 4% of the Earth's surface where someone can actually stand on land, travel to that spot's antipode, and end up on land. Some of the largest antipodal land masses are the Malay Archipelago, which is on the opposite side of the planet from the Amazon Basin, and East China and Mongolia, which is on the other side of the world from Chile and Argentina. Here in Hawaii, our antipode is a landmass, not too bad for being a tiny chain of islands in the middle of the largest ocean. And that landmass is the second largest continent. Africa. So if you were to, lo- to draw a straight line through the Earth's core from Hawaii to the other side of the globe, you would end up in Botswana. Unless you live on the north shore of Kauai, then it would be the neighboring country of Namibia. And we will, well, we were going to accept either answer. Uh, our winner today is Joan from Kaimuki. Congratulations. You got it right. We'll get a bag out to you. That is today's Backyard Quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. On HPR's conversation last month, we were the first to report that American Samoa was the only U.S. territory to remain free of COVID-19 cases. FEMA Region 9 Administrator Bob Fenton had been talking uh, about the lessons learned from the pandemic of 1918, which was then called the Spanish flu. We learned of the history of two Samoas thanks to the Retro Report, a nonprofit that produces documentaries. Take a listen to the story of the two Samoas, American Samoa and Western Samoa. American Samoa, one of the loveliest spots in all the Pacific. A place of rare beauty, of constantly changing scenery. Think fast. What are some things you know about American Samoa? Maybe that its Democratic caucus was, for some reason, the only contest won by Mike Bloomberg. Or maybe you know it is the site of the fictional alma mater of shady Breaking Bad lawyer Saul Goodman. Or maybe because people with Samoan parents are an estimated 56 times more likely to play in the NFL than other Americans, Junior Seau or Troy Palomalu come to mind. But today, there are other reasons people are talking about American Samoa. As American preparedness has come under scrutiny during the coronavirus. What was inadequate about the initial response? Advanced planning. Many of the things that we're doing right now, all could have been done in advance because we've known an epidemic is coming. The strange saga of a few tiny islands that came under American control nearly 5,000 miles from the mainland has some lessons to teach us. All we need to do is go back about a hundred years. America is called to arms. 
As World War I was winding down across the globe, deep in the Pacific, the fate of the Samoan people would now be separated by the actions of two different imperialists. New Zealand controlled the islands to the west, America ran the territory to the east. Enter the 1918 flu. The 1918 pandemic was a monster, killing an estimated 50 million people worldwide. And nowhere would the disease be felt more acutely than New Zealand's newly occupied Western Samoa. In late October 1918, a passenger ship left Auckland with the disease already spreading on board. When it reached Western Samoa, New Zealand officials there allowed the ship to disembark with a clean bill of health. Influenza tore through the native Samoans, and nearly a quarter of the island's inhabitants died. In the public inquiries that followed, the island's administrator, New Zealand Colonel Robert Logan, came under intense scrutiny, particularly his attitude toward the native Samoans. He would later describe them as, quote, like children who should be grateful for what he had done for them. Yikes. But the biggest scandal concerned a telegram he got from the man in charge of neighboring American Samoa, Naval Governor John Martin Poyer. Poyer appeared to offer assistance to Logan, who reportedly ignored it. That's likely because American Samoa had made a critical move, setting up a quarantine against his islands. Yonder mansion among the palms is the residence of the Naval Commandant Governor of American Samoa, only possession of the United States in the Southern Hemisphere. And that brings us to American Samoa. If New Zealand's islands suffered the world's worst case of the flu, some 50 miles away, the American territory was one of the miracles of the 1918 pandemic. Under Governor Poyer's swift and strict quarantine, not a single person on the islands contracted a confirmed case of the disease. It helps explain why the territory remained under American control, while Samoans to the west, horrified by New Zealand's leadership during the flu crisis, would later establish independence. So how exactly did American Samoa pull this off? Well, first it was a tiny colony of 8,000 people run by a naval commander. And along with the unilateral ability to lock down the territory, Governor Poyer also had strong buy-in from residents. Like lots of Pacific Islands at the time, American Samoa had experience with epidemics. Thanks to previous outbreaks of measles and smallpox in the region, they had a pre-designated quarantine facility that could be readied within two hours. And on top of that, Samoan communities were also governed by a traditional system of chiefs. Poyer enlisted them to help patrol the shores and make sure not even small boats slipped in over the reefs. American Samoa also sought information and used it. Authorities in Western Samoa had been underinformed about the pandemic, and though American Samoa lacked official communication from the U.S. government, Poyer and his staff sought out press reports and had a plan in place by the time Western Samoa was in trouble. Today, the story of the Samoas is a reminder of the need for all places, no matter how remote, to prepare for a pandemic. During the 1918 outbreak in the continental US, the list of so-called escape communities that avoided the onslaught of disease was tiny. A rural town in Colorado, a naval station in San Francisco Bay, a sanatorium for tuberculosis patients in upstate New York. Like American Samoa, they were small and isolated. And here's the thing, at some point, all of them saw at least some cases of the flu even if it was well after the rest of the world. In American Samoa's case, a new strain of influenza would finally come ashore in 1926. In our increasingly interconnected world, no nation, no community should plan on escaping a global pandemic. Despite being a lot bigger than it was a century ago, with a population of 56,000, American Samoa is once again the only US state or territory without a confirmed case of this pandemic. But that has not impacted the island's sense of urgency. In recent weeks, American Samoa has sent pleading letters to Washington, seeking ventilators, testing kits, and outreach to the territories on how to manage the coronavirus. And the steps they've taken are the same as here. Closing schools, banning gatherings, limiting public transit. Because in 2020, no place is an island, even when you are literally an island. That was Retro Report's Tale of Two Samoas. Producer Mike Spoler talked uh, to us from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he's currently based. I was <laughs> actually paying attention to the Super Tuesday results, and Mike Bloomberg take American Samoa after spending, you know, $500 million or so. He ended up winning there, and I, I just was curious about it, just from, from paying attention to that. And that night, I happened to 
come across this story about the quarantine that took place there. At that time, there wasn't sort of the coronavirus crisis that we that we know today, and just got interested in this story of a naval governor there who had managed to successfully quarantine the island. And it just so turned out that a couple weeks later, just about everyone was talking about quarantining. It's amazing because American Samoa is the only U.S. territory that is COVID-free. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, one of the things that they did, one of the last things they did was shut down the Hawaiian Airlines flights coming in. And, you know, at that time, I think that was on March 26th, there was some real concern that potentially they had had people come in, but so far it seems as if that's not the case, which is 100 years later, sort of the same story playing out. Well, we did talk to the head of FEMA Region 9 recently, and he was aware of that a bit of history, I think. And he also said that, you know, because the uh, island there just went through this uh, terrible measles outbreak, that everybody was just really, you know, on guard. Yeah, that was a, a factor for sure. And it's interesting going back to 1918, they had also had experience with epidemics coming through the region. In fact, not so much outbreaks on American Samoa, but the surrounding islands, they had had to sort of guard against it coming into their shores. And so they had a quarantine facility there that they had built and actually had asked to expand. They didn't ultimately get the funding to expand it, but but they had a quarantine facility ready by 1918 because they had seen measles and smallpox and other forms of influenza had come through the region. And so it's interesting that in about December last year, they were dealing with this measles outbreak. And so so they had been ready, you know, they, they had been sort of thinking about this kind of stuff prior to COVID-19. So I guess what struck you when you were doing this research and you saw what they did right and what they did wrong? When you look at the story of American Samoa, what you see is certainly they had some distinct advantages. They were a small island, a small group of islands, I should say, about 8,000 people at the time. They were run by a naval commander who was able to act pretty unilaterally. He didn't. There wasn't a lot of communication with mainland America at that time. In fact, you really had no sort of communication about the influenza coming in. And so there were definitely advantages in terms of the size and in terms of the unilateral authority there. But there were also things that are very applicable today. The naval governor there was informed about the uh, the pandemic coming through, whereas in Western Samoa, they had really not taken advantage of, of some of the resources or either they weren't avail- available to them about what was happening with the pandemic worldwide. And in American Samoa, they were reading press reports the best they could. They also had a uh, traditional system of chiefs who were able to patrol the island, and they worked with Governor Poyer in order to do that. And that's ultimately something we're seeing here in America is you need the local buy-in. You need a, an approach that works both at the top and at the local level, and they had that. And you mentioned that uh, you had some trouble initially uh, looking up information about Western Samoa, and you had to go look in the New Zealand and Australian newspapers? That night when I was curious about the Mike Bloomberg win, I wanted to look up the real-time story of what had happened there. And so I went to uh, the Library of Congress and tried to just find any uh, references to the work there, specifically the naval governor, any references to him there. And there was almost nothing on the American side. You know, we take a lot of pride. We don't leave a lot of our successes uh, untold in America. But this was one where, you know, I just couldn't find anything. And there was more, much much more on the Western Samoa side because of what had happened there. It was, you know, a, a tragic, tragic story. And so they had had public inquiries. And there were references to, hey, American Samoa didn't have these problems. Why was there this difference? And so you went and did that research and, and just found lots of uh, information about it. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of different, I would say, uh, archives used for this, because whatever you're telling a story in the early 20th century, prior to uh, sound on film, you're dealing with a lot of different archives in order to make something visually interesting. And the team at Retro Report is, is great at sort of finding those materials and figuring out ways to make them work. And so Retro Report, I mean, it, it's a way to showcase some really interesting history. Yeah, so Retro Report's 
started, I would say, almost a decade ago, and it's, the goal of it is to basically contextualize history through the lens of today, to sort of figure out where have we stopped along this path before, because a lot of things today can feel uh, unprecedented, especially in sort of social media age. It seems as if every waking moment is, you know, one of the most unique things that's ever occurred, and, and there's always a precedent in history, and when you look back at something that, uh, you know, people got through in the past, they overcame or they dealt with it or it was tragic, you can learn lessons from that. And so that that was the goal of Retroport, and it, it continues to be. So it's been uh, an interesting experiment with Retroport in order to figure out how do we tell stories across the broad spectrum of news that can continue to inform people through the lens of history. That was Matt Spoller, producer of the Retro Report short documentary film entitled A Tale of Two Samoas. Uh, Spoller has also produced a number of other films related to sports history, politics, and music. You can find links to the nonprofit on our website. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii, committed to the community's safety and dedicated to customers' financial preparedness, offering the ability to bank from home with mobile and online services 24-7. BOH.com. The world's reporters and producers have a singular mission to put you in touch with events around the globe that affect life here in the U.S., from the coronavirus to global trade to efforts to dial back climate change. Each day, we bring you fresh insights, unique voices, one-of-a-kind reporting. Join us for an hour that takes you around the globe. It's right here. It's the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. Well, that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we check in on the neighbor islands to see how the loosening of COVID restrictions has been going. We would like to hear from you. Do you feel comfortable going out to get your hair cut or shopping at the retail stores again? Or are you sticking closer to home? Don't want to chance it. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your Facebook comments at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.